and welcome to Tech Point Zero, the show about technology, people, and politics with Chris and Ben. You're listening to episode 8, released in April 2021. My name is Ben, and as ever, I'm joined by Chris. Hello. In this episode, we'll be chatting about FQ Coddle and open standards. Let's get to it. Um, so I think I'll start. The uh, thing I sort of want to talk about that I found uh, about a month ago now uh, is FQ Coddle. Um, I was having... Well, I suppose it's probably better to put this into context, Ben. The For the last five years-ish, mm-hmm. I've been running PFSense at home. Um, with a fair amount of network traffic in my house, and there might be downtime, but when when it's using when it's being used, everyone's using it. And one of the advantages of PFSense, other than just being able to teach myself uh, more networking, um, was uh, quality of service. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, that was enough. That let me root. Uh, that let me give give a high priority to pretty much all of the like latency sensitive traffic, so gaming, voice over IP, and everything that was working fine. But as more traffic has moved to HTTPS, and uh, games have start have tended to start doing have, have tended to be less bound to a single port and more floating in how they connect to services, that's become less and less effective over time. So I went looking for a solution, and this is a pretty well-known solution from what I understand. Um, there's a, a website called bufferbloat.net, um, which describes the actual problem that's happening. So in, in all of these situations when you need, would normally need quality of service, at least as a home user, what's happening is the buffer of your router or your, your gateway, uh, the, whichever, whatever is going from a, a fast connection, down to a narrow pipe um at that part it's got a big buffer so it gets a ton of data suddenly come along and it fills up the buffer and then it starts processing it Hmm. and it takes so long to process the the buffer that the stuff that came in early on has a noticeable delay to it an extra 100 milliseconds or more and obviously for some apps that's absolutely fine doesn't make any difference at all but for others, it's a huge problem. And that's where quality of service would normally have solved that problem. I've now switched to using a much simpler system. Like, it was easier to set up. It was simpler to set up. Uh, called FQ Coddle, which is uh, fair queuing Coddle. I believe there's other sort of technologies around this as well. Um, I'm not super well versed in the full details. But at a very high level, uh, what I understand about how it works is rather than doing sort of first in first out it splits the 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 packets into different streams Mm -hmm. Uh, and those streams are then served in a round robin fashion which means that if you've got a very small stream like a dns request or a game packet or something like that you you get a a big chunk of bandwidth or you get served very quickly and your packets get out of the way, leaving the rest of the bandwidth for the... The bigger, heavier stuff. Yeah. So it's essentially splitting your connection, even streams, based around, I think, the connections. I'm not... like I've been trying to read an awful lot about it, but um, I'm not entirely sure as to how how they determine um, 
the different streams of, of network traffic and, and, and what actually how they categorize it. Um, but it has had a dramatic effect. Like I was going to a point where particularly in gaming, my ping would regularly spike to a hundred and then drop back down and then back up again. I think that's, that's the worst um, situation to cope with because mm. you've got this constant change rather than just getting used to a fixed amount. And uh, it's cut, it's brought it back down to no more than 30. Like I, I ideally I get like 22, 23. And then uh, with FQ Coddle, even with the download running, even with multiple streams running, uh, I won't really top out over 30. And there's there's test tools available, like I mentioned, buff, uh, bufferbloat.net, I think it is. <clears throat> so they talk about some of the tools that you can use for testing uh, bufferbloat. And essentially what they are is speed tests that ping your machine at the same time. So if we're doing a huge download over your connection, can I still get a timely ping response? Yeah, I would recommend mm. doing them on a wired connection. The Obviously, Wi-Fi can cause... Uh, some extra interruptions and extra delays. As ever, you want the most reliable uh, connection as possible to test sort of the optimum, mm-hmm. uh, the, the optimum um, mm. sort of environment, and and then you then you layer Wi-Fi on top of that. Yeah, to to some extent, I agree. The router, really, not the end end device. Yes, but a lot of this came about because people tested in optimal conditions. So people would be like, okay, "I'm going to do a speed test." kill all the other traffic and do a speed test okay i'm going to do a ping test don't have anything else happening on the connection and do a ping test and they they give a certain picture of the quality of the connection but not a a great description of how the connection is under load yeah um and i don't i don't think there's much to say about this there's i kind of wish it was in more consumer equipment obviously there's some additional cost because you've got to do some uh, packet pro- additional packet processing and it hasn't yet been implemented in hardware. As uh, a bit of um, sort of background as to your setup, the uh, machine that this is running on, what are the sort of specifications of that machine? And uh, just so that we can kind of um, <laughs> compare that to what like a consumer router would, uh, would come with. Yeah, so the hardware it's running on is uh, just an AMD Sempron. Uh, 3850 APU. It's weird to use an APU in a router. I appreciate there's no need for the graphics capability. Um, but at the time, it was one of the. I mean, it's like it's a five plus year old CPU. I think it's from like probably 2013 or something ish. But at the time, it was the cheapest way to get a quad core CPU. Um, because I wanted to have quad core so that I could like so that the web interface wouldn't affect the routing and, and anything else that was going on a little bit more capability to run multiple services in that scenario uh i got very lucky uh in the choice of cpu it's got aes uh cryptographic extensions i didn't plan on that at the time but that's meant it's lasted a very very long time i think it's like an am1 socket or something it's it's a, it's a very old amd cpu but it's cheap and relatively low power um and i think it runs on like six gig of ram it's way more ram than it needs um and the only thing that actually failed in it uh a couple of years back has been the hard drive which i replaced with an ssd and yeah it's been it's been absolutely rock solid like pfsense i'm definitely a fan of um it's been much better than any consumer router i've used i've tried the ubiquity ones 
they're, they're they're okay, but they don't necessarily handle a lot of traffic very well. So that, that gives a good example of your question in terms of how does this compare to what a consumer would have. And I think this is very nice compared to what a consumer would have. <laughs> like when the the sort of higher end routers don't have the CPU a CPU powerful enough to do quality of service on a eighty megabit connection. Yeah. Like. I think this is a lot of the reason why uh, consumer home internet can seem so bad because the routers are very, very, very... Well, as a, I, I can't remember the exact uh, specifications, and this was about six years ago, but I remember having a... Uh, I don't remember the, the um, how I got to this point, but I had a spare router at home. Uh, I'd, I'd been given like a second one for some reason. Hmm. And I thought, oh, we could try and do something with this we could uh put uh open wrt on it or or something like that and yep. um it it was mind-boggling that there was this little um computer that was running some really low clocked mips processor um and uh, it had something like 64 megabytes of ram mm. and doing anything with it because you could ssh in and, and then obviously install stuff uh, doing anything on it was just horrendously yep. slow. You you could you could type out your command over SSH and watch it being printed back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've used uh, some of the OpenWRT stuff before. Um, it it definitely has a place, and I should add uh, they also support mm -hmm. FUCODL, uh, as does uh, I believe Ubiquity call it smart smart queue management or something to that effect. So they're like the main ways you would normally get. Uh, this on your on your connection is uh, some ubiquitous devices, OpenWRT, PFSense, and I would imagine the other open source yeah. uh, routers will have some support. Um, but I've, it's, it's dramatically improved the quality of the connection. Um, has probably has even improved video streaming. Like there's less reductions in mm. quality because they're actually not always using that much, and it's quite bursty. So I guess uh, also some of the questions for to, to sort of so so listeners can compare um, or viewers because we're now on video. Um, how long have you had this implemented, and uh, what sort of connection do you have to the outside world? Because obviously, uh, if you've got a super fast connection, that wouldn't necessarily uh, be comparable to me that doesn't have a great super fast connection. Yeah, so I've got a. Uh fiber to the cabinet cable connection in the uk um that normally gets about 64 megabits per second they used to have a very stable connection that broke and uh, they had to switch <laughs> the cables over and i've now got a connection that's a little bit less stable so it sort of varies between about 61 and 64 the fq coil is most useful when you're going from a significant like a, a a much larger amount of bandwidth down to a smaller pipe. So I suspect it would be less useful. And maybe this is also some of it is like my internal network has always been gigabit, but if you're not necessarily using that much data from the internal network side, mm. it's less useful again. But yes, if you've got a if you've got a very fast internal network and you're going down to a very slow external network, then it's in, it's very very useful because there's going to be a lot of buffering happening. As soon as that those connections approach parity, it becomes less useful because um, 
yeah, there's, there's there's no need to buffer at that point. Yeah. Something else I want to point out: if you feel like uh, having a go at doing this on PF Sense, then there's a great video from Lawrence Systems, which we'll try and put in the show notes, uh, that really talks you through how to do it, makes it really clear how to set it up. That's the one I followed, um, and yeah, it was it was it was great, straightforward. Uh, so as a as sort of a very brief overview, installing it into PFSense, is that is it sort of um, click a few buttons? Is it uh, run a, a command or two, or is it having to get deep into configuration files and you know tuning system settings? It's, it's not not that bad. You're doing everything in the web UI, so it's fairly straightforward in that respect. But you okay? But PFSense does tend to separate concerns very precisely, so you do set, have to set up. Uh, the queues, and you have to set up the firewall rules as a sort of separate elements, and it all gets tied together. And that's something that I mm. don't currently have the knowledge to sort of um, to just know. Like I had to follow a guide to show me how to do it and get it working. Um, I believe the PF Sense manual has a bunch of like recipes in it, which is like if you want to do something like this, this is all okay. the settings you would set, and that's normally a pretty good go-to for sort of setting other things up and i just found the uh, the lawrence systems video was much better and lawrence systems as a channel is absolutely great for uh the sort of uh true nas and pf sense content they make um has always been really really helpful your the setup as you've got it now is that something that you think is sort of set and forget or do you think there's some finessing that you've got um, left you to can do? do some finessing i don't think i'm going to be doing that one of the design decisions for FQCODL was it was fairly parameterless. And uh, I think they've been quite successful in that. So I'm uh, just going to leave it alone. <laughs> cool. Okay, so next I'd have, like to have a chat about open standards. Um, we're going to start with a little bit of a story of, uh, of how I got to where I am today. Back in around about 2004, I received a, a, a Google mail invite and was happily sort of in the Google ecosystem as far as uh, all of my mail was concerned. Uh, then we fast forward a few years and uh, I, I get a Mac and I've got an iPhone and all of my life is either in Google or in Apple. And and life is good. You know, the, the, the two were getting on really well with each other. Um, and then Android came out and they got on slightly less well. Um, and for various reasons, back in 2014, I decided to try and remove myself from Google as much as possible. Uh, I, I was very happily entrenched in, in the Apple ecosystem. All of my stuff was there. Um, I pulled my email away from, from Google, pulled my contacts from Google into, uh, into iCloud. Um, I think it was iCloud in 2014. Uh, my calendars went across everything uh, and I didn't shut down my Google account. It was still kind of there, um, but I don't use it apart from YouTube. And and I was happy for, for a number of years. And then last year, um, beginning of 2020, uh, it was time to sell my 2011 mm. iMac. It was fine. It didn't run the latest software, but it was still well supported. It ran everything that I wanted to, but I could see that in a year or two's time, it wouldn't get software updates anymore. Um, and and that's 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 a big importance to me. I, I want my uh, kit to have software updates, keep uh, keep secure yep. and whatnot. 
um, and, and other applications would stop working over time. So I sold it and I built the Linux desktop that I'm currently running running now and speaking to you on. And and, and life was still good. You know, I, I, there was a the rocky road of, of transitioning to a whole new system, but I had a problem. Um, I, I've got my email in, in Thunderbird and that's, that's brilliant um, because it uses IMAP, which is a wonderful mm -hmm. open source protocol. But when I typed in, when I went to create a new email in Thunderbird and I started typing in a name, there was, there was nothing there. And it's notoriously difficult to uh, tie your Apple address book to anything else that isn't Apple. And it's notoriously difficult to tie your uh, Apple calendars to anything else that isn't Apple. So all of a sudden, if I was sitting here yep. doing a podcast, doing a voice call, and I needed to add something to my calendar, I had to reach my phone. I couldn't just do it on um, on my desktop. Uh, again, if I wanted to quickly send a quick email and I was at my, um, at my desktop, it was difficult to then i have to get my phone out and or i'd have to log into iCloud and do the whole two-factor thing and so this annoyed me for about six to eight months and i started to explore nextcloud a little bit more now i've been running nextcloud since it mm. became a thing since I, I was running own cloud before before then and i've been running it primarily in fact solely as a file sync solution, sort of a, yep. a Dropbox or Google Drive replacement. And, and I love it for that. It's, it's been brilliant. Um, and I didn't really want it to be anything else. I like tools that are one thing. But it can be a contact server and it can be a calendar server. Um, and it does all these things via more open standards. It, it does the uh, calendar via CalDAV and the contacts via card dav. So after um, after sort of teasing all of my stuff out of iCloud, I was able to import it into my uh, my Nextcloud server, which I self-host, and uh, and then link it to Thunderbird and 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 again back mm. to my iPhone because my iPhone does support ingesting stuff via open standards. And this struck me as a really good, uh, just just a really good and, and really obvious thing to do. It, it's obvious that companies would want you to have their protocol because it locks you in. It, if I um, didn't know how to do any of this, I would probably have, I could have gotten so um, so annoyed with my Linux experience that I went out and bought a Mac because, yep. hey, that's just easier. I can't afford to do that, um, but but you see this sort of a across the board. We've got um, this is where I'm going to go into. I thinks um, way 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 back in the early days of some of the Google Chat protocols, they were using uh, Open uh, XMPP protocols, and they sort of lured you in with this whole we're 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 open standards. We're you know you can use our stuff. You can use these other third party clients. And then they revved their service and it was no longer open open protocols. They were using their own proprietary stuff and you couldn't you couldn't use third party third mm -hmm. party clients anymore. Um so 
yeah, so now I'm kind of living in this world where I've got my sort of, if you like, my my email suite, the the the, the email, the, uh, the the calendar, and the contacts are all open standards, and I can kind of access them from from anywhere. Yeah, I I was recently aiming for a fairly similar setup. I I appreciated it was going to take some time to get there. I didn't want to do it all in one go. Um, the reason my reasonings are a bit different. Um, so I. All of my, I've felt strongly for a long time that people should have their emails at a domain they own. Absolutely. One of the quick reasons for doing that is that it allows you to pick up your email address and take it wherever you like. Um, Even if through some horrible uh, wizardry, you can't take your emails with you, you can move and people can still contact you. Yeah, exactly. And um, I've always done that. I've always had a domain where my emails are at, and that's been my primary email domain for a very long time now. But it's also for pretty much the entirety of that time been hosted with a Google custom domain, which I don't know if you remember. <laughs> um, they originally launched as a free product, and I enthusiastically signed up. And uh, then they removed the free tier that I, I got grandfathered in, and I've continued to be a grandfather <laughs> for a very long time indeed. Um, however, uh, you essentially get classed as a business account. And for some Google services, especially the smart home services, you get locked out of an awful lot of the additional functionality, which has been frustrating me um, a great deal. Um, I'd also rather not be locked into the Google ecosystem quite as much as I am. Like some of that was there. So I was like, okay, I'm going to move to another Google account. And there's some definite costs to that for me. Um, I think probably the biggest time sink, actually, I, I was thinking I was kind of going through everything. The biggest time sink for me that I would be losing, or time investment I would be losing, is my Google, uh, sorry, my YouTube recommendations. And if I switch to another Google account, then I have to switch all of that across somehow, all of my playlists, all of my, I'm not going to get the watch list, uh, watch history, but my watch later playlist is a thousand videos long. Um, So I'd have to move all that across. I'm sure there's services out there that will help me do it, but there's a lot there kind of invested in it. Uh, So me and my wife share, uh, well, we share our calendars with each other via Google Calendar, and I'd have to work out how to, if I was going to switch to another calendaring system, how would she integrate with my calendar um, and, and that side of it. Um, also, the, I run Nextcloud on, on my home server, which, as you probably know, has to be turned off during recordings, which is not ideal for a service that I would like to be available at all times. Um so there's there's an awful lot of, of little edge cases. Um I also I try I wanted to try and move to a Google account that still had my custom domain email address, but I can't do that until I've transferred to somebody else. So I have to transfer to another service provider because I've because those email addresses are run by Google, so they are valid Google accounts as of right now. So I'd have to transfer I don't know if there's a waiting period, like, does it take a while until they close it down? 
And I definitely am feeling very trapped inside the Google ecosystem. And I can't easily plan a way out of it at the moment. Like other than other than where the opportunities arise every time there's a choice, don't go with Google. Like and hopefully in five or ten years it will become easier. You can do some of the some of the small things. So as long as you have a your own address book, you can migrate that address book to anywhere that does uh, say card dev. But actually, it's not really that simple. Uh, it, it, it's simple enough for your for your phone. It's simple enough for your um, any email clients that you might use okay. on your desktops. But if you ever use the Google web interface, as far as I understand it, Google won't allow you to sync in their web interface from a card dev server. Uh, this is, in fact, the, the the very problem I had today. Mm. So I I uh, have my email hosted with a company called Zoho, um, and I'm forever frustrated that when I'm on my work laptop and I use the web UI, um, it doesn't have any of my cal- uh, yep. my uh, contacts there. So I I dived into all the settings today, and although I can use my Zoho account as a card dev server, I can't point it at a card dev server and get my contacts which is really frustrating um, because it just feels like it's. I've just defeated the purpose. I, I've got this open protocol that anybody can implement and yeah. and this company has decided, oh, no, no, we're not going to allow you to do that. And they're implementing it in, in some circumstances and not others because I assume you can have it on your Android phone. Well, you can have, you can have their card DAV any way you like um because that's that, that's where they're serving it from okay now if you had so i've got my um i've got an iphone i've got my zoho email on there uh, and then i've just got a different account that points to my personal card dev server and ios does its thing it, and exactly the mm-hmm. same android would just do its thing um but in in the zoho ecosystem in the google ecosystem in as far as i can understand it having done a bit of research today whichever ecosystem that you're in when you're dealing with their platform directly i.e via a, a web interface they just don't give you the uh, the flexibility to point to outside services and say i want to get my contacts from there please i'd like to get my calendar from over there so it's kind of difficult to just chip away yeah it yeah, it's, it's a very difficult problem to crack because there's no... I, I think it's very unlikely that we're going to end up with phones from another provider at this point, um, especially not of the same quality and functionality as, as Google and, and Apple currently provide. Yeah, if you if you want to have all of that data stored separately, which is important to me and is important to many other people, you end up in a situation where there's no other options. It's very similar to the situation that I, I see happening and, and to some extent contribute to, where if if you're very, very privacy-focused uh, and you go round to a friend's house that has a bunch of smart devices, what what is the etiquette there? Like, I've, I've previously explained that to people and they've been uncomfortable, I've offered to turn them off, and they've been happy for me to do that. But when... 90% of people or even 60% of people have smart devices in their house does does it become difficult for you to have 
that conversation at, at that mm. point. Um, and the the sort of the you know, the needs of the few scenario <laughs> um, where I don't think it's that unreasonable to ask that people for whom privacy and some degree of independence from those companies, I don't think that's silly for them to ask to have the option for at the very, very minimum. Are there services available like apps on Android devices and, and iOS devices that will act as like an intermediary for you? So they'll do the syncing, like essentially sync from your uh, web dev endpoint into the contacts of the phone, which then themselves probably get synced back up to the Google or Apple um, systems. My experience on iOS is that mm. as far as the system goes, I can I can get my contacts. Let's just stick with contacts. I can get contacts from multiple sources and the iPhone does a fairly good uh, job at just merging all of that information together yep. into one seamless address book, which is, is actually really nice yep. um, to be able to do. The What it doesn't do, because generally you don't want to do this if you've got, say, um, your personal address book and your corporate work address book, mm. it doesn't say, hey, I've got these two address books, let's make them the same. It, it sort of blends them together for you on the phone, but keeps the keeps the cloud services completely separate. Yep. It feels weird to me that that might be, that, that what you're suggesting might be present on a phone, yes. but it certainly <laughs> feels like there should be some kind of a service um, that would do that. Uh, and actually, yeah. yes, it probably... As as weird as it is, it feels exactly like the kind of thing that you get on a phone or as a um, a web browser plugin. I say in the same way that you had, I think it was Xmarks, the bookmarking service. Uh, mm. I used to use that to get my um, to get my uh, so I use iCloud to sync my bookmarks from Safari on my um, laptop, no, on my iPhone to Safari on my um, Mac. And then I'd use Xmarks to sync that to Xmarks, which would then sync it to my work PC that had Firefox on. And that, you know, I had this really kludgy sort of... (laughs) It it wasn't nice, but it kind of worked. You're you're taking advantage of the APIs where they are. And I, I would imagine, I do not know, but I would imagine that the APIs are adding contacts on a mobile device are far more mature and far more supported than they are for adding them through some web service. And I might well be wrong. I haven't, I haven't looked into it, but it, it seems like a fair assumption. And uh, yeah, that's one way you could do it, even if it does kind of turn the phone into a server in a weird way. There is something that's crossed my mind in terms of, you mentioned XMPP getting kind of... <sighs> taken as an open format and then kind of uh, brought inside. And that's happened multiple times. My understanding is that Google Chat, WhatsApp, and uh, Facebook Messenger at the very minimum uh, were all forks in some way of XMPP. And it does bring about this idea of can, can an open standard survive in the current economic system? Like, Whenever you release a successful open standard that gains any traction, 
a company is going to start using this uh, the Microsoft Embrace Extend Extinguish strategy to get around that. So I think it's an interesting one. And this brings us into a, a wider discussion on perhaps licensing. Uh, so one of the really interesting things is, and I think uh, I, I talk about this a lot, so I may have mentioned it before. Uh, one of the interesting things is that in the Linux world, we say that we have the um, the GNU public license to protect us from uh, people taking our stuff and, and doing their own thing. Anything that they, uh, any derivative works that they make, they've got to uh, contribute back to the to the source project. Mm-hmm. And uh, but in the BSD world, um, it's often said that you know with a permissive license, people can just take your stuff and use it. And yes, they can. But the problem with taking something and just using it, uh, and I'm, I'm talking about software here, is that that thing continues to change where you took it from. And whatever mm. whatever change set you create, every so often when a new release of that that software comes out, you've got to modify your changes to work with with all the changes that have happened in the main sort of branch, if you like. Mm. And so, what you actually find the like big companies, you find people like Dell, like Netflix, like uh, Sony, like maybe not Sony. Um, who's EMC? That's that's Dell as well, isn't it? Um, there, there's a whole bunch. NetApp. There's a whole bunch of big, big companies that take from BSD, do their own thing, but because they don't have to, because they don't want to have to maintain um, this this sort of um, interface between their changes and and the main product, they contribute their changes back because. Sure, they're still like the the earmarked maintainers for it, but they don't have to worry about integrating it into the next release. It it that will kind of be done for them, if you like, um, or at least if it breaks, well, it's part of the project now. It, it's it's got to it's it's got to work. It can't can't be broken. Yeah, yeah. So when you're when you're taking something like that. Um, there's very clear wins for contributing your changes back, even if the license doesn't uh, compel you to. But with protocols, it's an interesting one because a lot of the time, companies like Microsoft, Google, Facebook want to um, take this this work done by other people, um, this, this open standard, and and capitalize on it. And they don't want you using um, some weird, obscure uh, client to connect to it because that could be buggy and give you a really bad experience and then you'll complain about it. They want to control Mm. it end to end. And because they control it end to end, they don't have to care about um, contributing back because they're they're probably not going to pull regularly from that main open source system again. And also, a lot of these protocols, by this point, are relatively stable. So it's not yeah. like they have... So they don't, they don't have that need for those changes that you're going to miss out on. Exactly. Um, so we're in, a, we're in a really poor situation where, um, yeah, companies can just take stuff, capitalize on it, put proprietary extensions on it, and not they're not mm. compelled to give back through licenses or otherwise. Yeah, yeah exactly. I think... The only one that that's not happened for is is, is email, mm. and I even now while a lot of a lot of people are on Gmail, if 
Google suddenly decided, oh no, we're we're changing the Gmail server so you can only email people who are part of Gmail, and you can only receive emails from people who are part of Gmail, then it would very very quickly uh, find people leaving it because it it would no longer be useful. Uh, whereas it was a, they were able to do the same thing with XMPP without people leaving the service as a result. And, and that's because with XMPP, they controlled, if you like, the entire of their stack, um, whereas with email. Uh, there are a couple of interesting things, though, about email. Um, one is when we look at someone like ProtonMail, who someone like myself, and I, I'm guessing you, Chris, would uh, tout as being a, a really good example of um, you know being privacy conscious and, and all of that, um, generally speaking. Um, they, for a long time, I, I don't know if they've um, fixed it now. Uh, they didn't offer um, IMAP or POP support. So you couldn't use your okay. own um, email client. You had to go through their web interface or their mobile client. And this was really mm-hmm. annoying because at, at one point a few years ago, I wanted to, I was looking at perhaps adopting them as my email provider. But because on iOS, again, this is a, a, a as much a failing of, of iOS, because on iOS, I can't set my default mail app. Every time I clicked on a mail link in a, you know, a website or chat or whatever, it would open up Apple Mail and not ProtonMail. And I can't. I can get my Google yep. account in Apple Mail. I can get my Zoho account in Apple Mail. I can get almost every other email provider's mail in Apple Mail. Couldn't get Proton Mail yep. in it. Um, and so that's one way that they sort of. Um, and, and that was because of sort of technical problems with the whole. In, all of your email is encrypted, so the whatever whatever the client um, you were using needed to be able to understand that. So that was kind of um, almost scarily moving towards a um, uh, proton mail only uh, protocol. And although you could receive and send email, email that you sent couldn't be encrypted in the same way as to uh, between other proton mail users. So they were actually having Mm. like um, uh, an internal case and an external case, which was kind of scary in in a sort of open protocols conversation. The, the other thing, yeah. um, and definitely not um, open protocol, but but the other thing with Gmail was they did, um, I'm going to get it wrong now, they did push email. It was, yeah, push email yeah. to mobile, app, uh, mobile devices. Back, I want to say it was around 2015, sometime about then, they decided that they were not going to support push on um, new iOS devices. So your current iOS device was fine, right? But the next iOS device yeah. that you got, um, they wouldn't support push email on, and and so again, it was that little bit of sure. This isn't a this isn't a a piece of email protocol, but it, there was this service, mm. there was this thing they were saying, no, because you're not on a Google device. You can't have that anymore. Mm-hmm. And there was so there's these mm-hmm. little things about email that have happened that have made me think if Google really wanted to, they could force you to either use the web UI, some kind of des- Google desktop mail app, a, a Google yep. mail uh, application on your phone. Um, they could really yep. lock down 
their standard protocol bits and just have SMTP talking to the outside world. Yeah, they could totally do that. And they wouldn't lose many people. Not because, at all. I mean, I, I use the web client most of the time. Um, I appreciate not having to. It's a big win. Uh, but it's not something I'd make use of all the time. Um, I mean, I have used Thunderbird in the past. Uh, it went through a period where the project seemed to be... Uh, it almost died, I think, at one point. Being sunset. and um, Yeah, yeah. And uh, it was sort of just, just doing maintenance releases, and that was like, I'm starting to get a bit nervous about sticking around with this, especially in terms of will people be looking at the security of it, and, and that that frequent update cycle was kind of missing. But as far as I'm concerned, they've, they've undone that now. Um, and it's, it's getting frequent updates again. It certainly still seems to be any updates for me. Thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe to our YouTube channel linked in the show notes. You can also follow us on Twitter at tech underscore point underscore zero. We hope you join us again for the next episode.